Welcome to OAC Vancouver's podcast. Thank you for tuning in. We believe that Jesus is needed and relevant for people in Vancouver today. The message of God's love and promise of wholeness was destined to be experienced within a faith community that worships, studies scripture, and prays together. We warmly welcome you to journey with us towards greater connection, purpose, and peace. We'll be sharing our recorded services and conversations with health and wellness experts. Enjoy. Good morning to all of you. So wonderful to see so many new faces, so many faces that have been away for a while for the summer season. Um, And if you're rejoining us after a hiatus or here for the first time, a special welcome to you again. Um, In September, we're doing a new teaching series called Return, Regroup, Renew, Lessons and Insights from the Book of Nehemiah. If uh, you're not that familiar with the Bible, Nehemiah comes in the Old Testament and kind of a special part of history. Um, God is trying to build up a people that would represent him, represent his character, represent his ethics, his morals, represent compassion, generosity, uh, love, and grace. And yet um, they kind of got influenced by the status quo. They kind of got sucked into the um, build your own kingdom instead of build God's kingdom mentality. And so because they sort of succumb to the lures of greed and self-provision and, and pride, they stepped out of this covenant promise that God had made with them saying, look, I'm going to give you the boundaries, the rules, the practices, which will keep you noble, which will keep you well, which will keep you flourishing in your relationship to me and your relationship to community. But they kind of fell away from that. They kind of got sucked into to the lure of you could prosper better on your own. It's the same, same old, same old as the serpent in the, in the Garden of Eden that says, you could do better. You could do better without God. And so their nation, as warned by several prophets, is overrun. Their precious temple is flattened. Their capital city of Jerusalem is in ruins. In fact, the whole kingdom itself has split into two. But after a period of 70 years, which is in Bible prophecy, there is a new king and he's allowing people to go back to their homelands and build up their territories and cities, but still under Babylon and then Persian rule. So when we come to Nehemiah, it's this ongoing story of how to rebuild not just the city, but rebuild their community. And so uh, last week we did Nehemiah chapter one, two, and three. So if you have your digital Bible or a physical Bible and you want to turn with me, we're going to be covering chapters four, five, and six today. So four picks up in the story where Nehemiah was the cupbearer to the king of Persia has successfully appealed to the king to resource and finance and protect him on his journey back to Jerusalem city. And he has convinced the people that it is a good idea to rebuild the walls. So when we start with chapter four, it says word of our progress in rebuilding the wall reached Sandbalat and he became enraged. If you haven't read the first three chapters, we get introduced to this character of Sanbalat as kind of an opposer 
of this. He might have been a governor or a regent in the neighboring territory. And so he's seeing this as a threat that another community in his backyard is strengthening their walls. Now he unleashes kind of these rhetorical questions at the Jews. He says, you know, what are they up to? Are they going to appoint themselves to put this wall back together? Are they going to resume offering sacrifices amongst the ashes? Do they think they can pull this off in a day? Do they mean to resurrect this charred rubble as a wall? This is biblical trash talk. Here, we have some victim shaming going on. This is the oppressed, enslaved people that have finally got given the liberty to go back and they're trying to do what we say to do, like pull yourselves up by your bootstraps. And here is um, the critic. Here is a propaganda campaign being launched to intimidate these builders, to throw shade on their efforts, to frustrate them. And he's not alone. He's got company. Uh, A man named Tobias says the same thing. He's like, what is it that these Jews are building? Surely it can't be a wall for a fox climbing upon it would bring it down. Instead of the yo mama joke, this is a yo wall joke. You know, your wall is so feeble, it's so sloppy that even a fox trying to climb it would tear it down. So we have these verbal assaults and these attacks that obviously are in earshot of Nehemiah because he's the one who records it in the book. And what is his response in the face of this uh, campaign? He prays. Verse 4, he doesn't answer them directly, but he says, Do you hear this? Are you paying attention to this, God? For we are worse than nothing to these men. Turn their curses back on them. Depending on your translation, I'm reading from the voice translation today, but another translation says, Boobarang their slander which means everything that they're spewing out. It's just like, you know, kids are back in school. Do they still say, everything you say, I'm rubber and you're glue. Everything you say bounces off of me and sticks to you. Do they say that in 2023? Or am I teaching you some, some good lingo? Okay, you can use that script. You don't have to give me credit. Somebody else taught it to me. But yeah, he's basically in his prayer. God, let us be rubber and let them be glue. So that everything they throw at us, every insult, just bounces off, boomerang, boomerang this slander. Let them feel what it's like to be belittled like this. When we face the bullies, is our first reaction, is our first response prayer? Or do we put our dukes up and get ready for the fight? Nehemiah knows. Nehemiah knows the one that he's going to take this hurt to is best directed at the Almighty God. And in fact, he's acknowledging this is not just personal. He says in verse five, do not cover their wickedness or erase the reality of sin for they have mocked you in front of the men rebuilding this wall. So he's not so much uh, troubled by the fact that these are personal insults, but he's saying what they're saying is actually against your reputation, God. What they're doing is actually belittling and mocking you. 
So I'm going to leave it to you to set up a response to this. So they returned. They returned in the building, focused and determined to work as one people, stacking rock upon rock until the one end of the wall actually met the other and they got it half of its original height. And then the news that this gaps in the wall were quickly closing and the city was beginning to heal. It reached the lands surrounding Jerusalem and Sanballat, Tobiah, the Arabs, the Ammonites, the Ashadites became furious. Okay, now the neighbors are teaming up. In fact, they were so upset, they devised a plot to attack Jerusalem and create confusion. And I love it again. It says, what is our response? In verse 9, our response to this next external threat is twofold. We prayed to our true God and we set up watch. When the onslaught of attack comes at you from naysayers, maybe neighbors, maybe friends, maybe coworkers, we have a twofold response that we can take. Again, we turn it over to God, but Nehemiah, as we read in the first three chapters and now in this chapter, he's not just a man of fervent, persistent prayer. He takes action as well. He trusts that whatever he does in his next step, if it's guided by God, God's going to bless it. He doesn't just pull away and put it to prayer. And this is where when we have a crisis, when we have a need, when we have a goal, it's not just about our thoughts and prayers. It's also about the action we take. God gave him the wisdom and said, as a people pray and set up watch. Equip yourself. And you will read the rest of the chapter that they have physical um, armaments. They have, pick up their shields. They get their so swords. And even their hunting bows become used to protect themselves. In the book of Ephesians in the New Testament, we're also told as Christians to be ready ourselves with an armor of God, a belt of truth, you know, the helmet of salvation, shoes that bring and focus us on the path of peace. So these people are getting ready. And even so, though, I mean, these attacks, as much as they are turning them over to God, it's still having a, an effect, right? We can't ignore that, that um, bullies and slander and mockery is going to affect us personally. Verse 10 says, even so, people were afraid there'd be another attack. The Judeans spoke to Nehemiah and said, our builders are growing weary Look at all the waste. Look at all the rubble strewn across the ground. We're not able to rebuild a wall on this kind of foundation. And the enemy started to spread the word. It's working. It's working. You know, there are some things. There is a campaign of misinformation and doubt and discouragement that is used today in military tactics in war that is sometimes more powerful than an actual physical affront. And the people, unfortunately, are fixing their eyes on the rubble before them. Have you ever been in a situation like that where students, your books are piled this high, your paperwork is piled this high, it's tax time, your receipts are piled this high, and you're like, 
just looking at it, I'm tired. <laughs> I'm exhausted. Just the view of what's before me, just my schedule and my calendar, it's too much. We literally have people in our community whose homes have been brought down in fires, and I can't imagine how they're connecting to this story. They relate to the Judeans who are looking at ashes and rubble and saying, where do we even begin? Everything's covered in soot. Everything's soggy. Where do we even begin? Because their eyes are fixed on the problem. We grow weary. We are exhausted. If only we'd remember in our prayer to sometimes not look down at our feet, but to look up to the source of power and provision and protection. It's because their eyes are getting fixed on the problem and they're hearing the enemy say it over and over again in their ears. It's impossible. What a crazy task. They start to lose hope. They start to let fear creep in and take hold of their attitude and their perspective. And Nehemiah knows that something has to be done because now even the Jews that are outside of Jerusalem, the neighbors have come to them. Here's another confrontation that we come across in verse 12. They were Jewish people who didn't all return to the, the capital city, but spread out farmers. And they start coming to Jerusalem and they start saying, you are surrounded, right? We just read a list of communities and people, the Arabs, the Ammonites, they're teaming up and they have you surrounded. Some of the translations are literally going to say 10 times they told us, get out, return, come in and live with us outside of these walls. Give up this foolish endeavor. You're give up this dangerous endeavor. Some translations might say they told us repeatedly or over and over again, but I think the Hebrew author really meant to say 10 times. You see, when they rebuilt the wall, as we read in chapter 3, there were 10 gates around the city wall. And for every gate, these people are saying, there is an attack mounting. For each of your 10 gates, there's a warning that if you go out this gate or that gate, they've got you surrounded. How can just a few people defend against these mounting collective armies? And then this is where I think Tolkien got his inspiration for King Aragorn. Or if I was to cast the story of Nehemiah, I would have to use Viggo Morganson because he gives this really powerful speech. He says, do not be afraid of these people. Instead, remember the eternal one, our great and awesome Lord. Fight for your people, your sisters, your brothers, your sons and your daughters, your wives and your homes. Wow, can you just hear that? He's inspiring the people to take their ears off of the sound of threats to take their eyes off of the rubble and to look up to the great, eternal, powerful and awesome Lord and remember what they're fighting for. They're not just fighting for their personal protection. They're fighting for their reputation. They're fighting for their place on earth as God's good people, as a symbol of who Yahweh is, of who the creator is. And so while the enemies had intended an ambush, a surprise ambush, Nehemiah is given the wisdom, is given the information from these 
outsider Jews, and he sets up the people at every single gate, and he divides them into shifts. There's going to be watchmen at night, there's going to be builders in the day, and everyone kept um, a sword, a sling, a bow on their persons, and chapter 5 says they even worked with a hammer in one hand and a sword in the other. They were devoted and committed to the mission, to the goal. But we come to chapter 5 and we see that another tension is going to arise. Another challenge is going to arise. If chapter 4 does anything, it tells us that when we face oppression and opposition from outside, our response is to pray. We also see that the physical goals that the people have in building the wall are connected to their spiritual state and their spiritual health. When their spirits are down, the work starts to wane and they get discouraged. But when they look up to God, their spirits and their spiritual growth and their faith and their trust in God is strengthened. So th that was the oppression from without. But now we find there's maybe even more threats and more problems within. Chapter 5 opens with a protest. Anyone who thinks that it's not uh, right to lift your voice in protest, we see it over and over again in Scripture. The people come to Nehemiah. He's the governor. And, and it says the men and the women cried out to him, saying, um, our fellow Jews, our fellow Jews have indentured us, have financially crippled us. We're mortgaging our fields. Mortgage is not uh, a contemporary 21st century concept. The idea of mortgaging is right here in biblical history. As far as people had wealth and possessions uh, to lend and to leverage, we have this concept. And they're saying, you know, like our people were taken in exile. They were taken as prisoners. They were taken as slaves by the Babylonian Empire, or kept as slaves as the Persian Empire. And we've done a work to try and buy them out of slavery, to buy them back. A biblical term is redeem them. And yet what has happened is a famine is still in the land. And the Jews that have are kind of exploiting the Jews that have not. Oh, you can't pay back the loan. Well, I'm charging interest. Oh, you don't have any money to pay the interest? Well, then you could just give up your son, give up your daughter, and they can work for me. They can wor help work it off. And so some of your um, Bible translations might use this term usury. They, they had a problem with usury, which is lending with such high interest rates that it becomes impossible to get out of debt. You're just paying off the interest on the loan. Does anyone feel me in 2023 with our credit card debts and our mortgage payments and the interest rates going through the, the roof? And Nehemiah is hearing that there is maybe bigger trouble within the community than there is a threat from without. This is a social justice. This is a, a financial exploration of their own people at the time the, the Persian king from archaeological texts is taxing as much as 350 talents per year. That is beyond the average annual salary of possession of these impoverished agriculturalists and laborers. 
And Nehemiah is troubled, deeply troubled at the injustice amongst really family, amongst brothers and sisters, amongst the community. He's saying, you know, this isn't good. This isn't right. I wish we had someone to say that on listening ears to our banks today. These interest rates, they're really, they're really tough. They're really creating a financial pinch. And it's not right that you're making such a big profit off of lending money. And Nehemiah's response um, in verse uh, 5 verse 9 is to sort of say, hey, it's not wrong to lend each other and help each other out, but don't do it in an exploitive way. Charge no interest. It says he himself began lending grain and silver and goods to the people. The difference is he wasn't going to let the interest rack up and cripple them. He was going to give them the dignity and empower them and give them the opportunity to pay back these debts. So he calls for them to stop on the exploitation of people. And again, he points everything back to the spiritual. We talked about that last week, is that we as Westerners tend to separate our secular lives and our spiritual lives, our secular work, our spiritual work, our secular time, our spiritual time. But everything is spiritual. And Nehemiah is so good at kind of calling the people back to recognize and understand that. When there's bullies threatening him, he, he tells God, this is spiritual. When the people are oppressing each other, he says, this is a spiritual problem. What are the other nations going to think? What are the other nations going to think of our God and our community? If we are doing to each other what we called out the bad guys for doing. And don't we recall that we're in this state, we're rebuilding our city and our walls? Because we neglected to keep the covenant code in the first place. Because we fell into this kind of exploitive, disruptive, abusive, self-profiting practices to begin with. That's why God allowed our enemies to take over. And so again, we have his, his speech and he says, it's not good. It's not good for you to, to do this. You should be living in fear and in awe of God. And what he's saying is, trust God with your profit margins. You know, this uh, uh, financial exploitation and charging interest on the loans to your, your family and your friends, it's coming from a scarcity mindset. You're not trusting God will take care of you. You're trying to build up your own security blanket, your own little bubble of wealth. And you're so fixated on that that you would cause your neighbor, your brother, your sister to go into repressible debt. So he's calling them to remember they belong to God. They fear and respect God and how they treat each other. And the neighboring nations are going to see that, wow, within this community, they don't charge each other interest. Within this community, they are generous with having to repay back the loan. And in fact, Nehemiah's words, though it doesn't say it explicitly, seem to institute a long-forgotten practice of jubilee. God had instituted for uh, Moses' community, the Israelites in the wilderness, that once they got to the promised land, once they established that they had property and they had land and they had territory, he said, make sure that every generation, every 50 years, we have a jubilee year. And what that means is that if you're in debt, if you were an indentured slave or servant, if you had to give up 
an acre of lands to pay your taxes, that in the year of Jubilee, everything was liberated, everything was reset. And that allowed for the equilibrium and equality and equity among people to be reset and reestablished every generation, every 50 years. It was a, a year where they just um, would party and they would not toil the, the soil. They would attend the soil. Like the land would get a breather. Anything that just grew wild is what they would harvest. And it allowed them to remember we trust God for our provision. We trust God to keep us. But being in exile, they didn't have an opportunity to practice this jubilee. And so Nehemiah is calling them. He says, immediately return all collateral, fields, vineyards, olives, houses, any interest that you are still holding out on these loans, forgive it, release it. And in the future, don't do this anymore. And the Jews said, we've heard what you said. Amen, your, your Bible might read. May it be so. And he does this funny object lesson where he says, I'm shaking out my lap, depending on your translation, or, or the message puts it, like he pulls out his pockets and he turns them inside out. And he said, may God do this to us, to those who fail to keep this promise. May he treat us like the lint in your pocket when you're trying to get rid of it and shake it out because you're not helpful you're not doing a good thing. So he said, do what's right now so that God doesn't have to shake you loose from your houses and your lands. And the people are in agreement. And once again, they commit to they focus on completing the wall. And Nehemiah talks at the end of chapter five about, you know, how generous he is. And I feel like chapter six, if it had a, a subtitle, should be like, can't stop me now. You know, he's, he's really got his sights on the finish line. But those external pressures, the external opposers aren't done with him yet. Verse, uh, chapter six, verse one says, once again, we found out that our progress in building this wall had been reported to our enemies, Sanballat, Tobiah, Geshem, they heard that under my leadership, the wall was being rebuilt and not one gap remained. Now, Sanballat and Geshem had sent messengers to me saying, come and meet with us in the plain of Ono. <laughs> and Nehemiah was like, oh, no, <laughs> I'm not going to do that. He's seeing he's smelling out uh, a tactic. And so he says, no, I'm not going to do that. And this exchange, it says, played out four separate times where he was summoned to go meet them in the plains of Ono. And each time he said, oh, no. <laughs> he said, I have a good work to do and I will not come. When we're faced with distractions, when we're faced with deception, this is a great um, tactical, polite response to have in your back pocket another script to pull out and be ready with. The enemy wants you over there. The enemy wants to take you away from what is your purpose and your calling. And when you hear, when you hear that invitation, it might come dressed very sweetly, very positively. You say, I know right now I'm doing a good work and I will not come. come.
to tell you personally, this is something I have struggled with a lot in the past two years. Oh, you've got such a great skill set. We could use you in our company. Why are you still pastoring in a church where the denomination is quite sexist and backwards and traditional? Wouldn't you love to just work in a succinct environment where your job is clearly laid out and there's good HR policies protecting your time on and your time off? And I get that invitation a lot, entering my thoughts, entering my heart. Wouldn't it be better? Maybe I should solve the problems that I'm facing here, but maybe just stepping out for a bit and contemplating what the other offers are. And the reason, the answer I give to the question, well, why are you still doing this when it's hard, when it's difficult, when you feel underappreciated or unsupported? My answer is always, God has not released me yet. I might sometimes pray and ask him to, but he hasn't released me yet. Nehemiah gives me that script. I'm doing a good work. Anything done for the Lord is not in vain. So while I don't see the results that I long for, while I don't see um, the growth and the impact that I crave, I know that I'm doing a good work. And so I can't go. Not until God releases me. Not until he shows me that there is another path or another task or another place. I'm going to stay the course. Nehemiah then gets an open letter. Do you know what an open letter is? We do this all the time on social media. We say an open letter to Kinder Morgan, an open letter to the conservative party, an open letter to the liberals out there. And it's basically saying, hey, this is the letter. You share it freely. I'm not talking to any one individual. I'm putting my opinion out there. So in these days, in the biblical days, a letter directed to someone should be sealed. It means that the person opening the seal is getting the message privately. But we have Sam Bellet now delivering an open letter, which means that as the messenger brought the letter, anyone they saw along the roadside, any town they passed through, said, I'm carrying this letter to Nehemiah. And it contains even more slander. It says, there's a report. There's a rumor among the surrounding nations that you are rebuilding this wall because you want to be king. And you're planning a revolt. You're planning a rebellion. And this letter is to determine if the rumors are true that prophets are now announcing in Jerusalem that Judah has a king. This report is going to go to King Artaxerxes. This is the, I'm telling on you. <laughs> I'm going to tell dad. And Nehemiah is not worried because he knows that he was the cupbearer and trusted friend of the king. And the king is not going to just respond to rumors and fake news. The king, if anything, is going to send out his own um, nobles to go and verify it. And that's going to come at a cost and probably will charge it back to send ballot. So Nehemiah is not worried. When people try and blackmail you about stuff that isn't true, we don't have anything to fear. We say, I'm an open book. Go ahead, make your report. It's not true. Nehemiah has courage in the face of this. And he says, I knew that the enemy's intent was to intimidate us and stop the work. 
thinking that the Jews would stop rebuilding out of fear and discouragement. Friends, this is the spiritual warfare that each and every one of us faces. Fear and discouragement. That's all the enemy is up to. He knows that in the end, the victory belongs to Jesus. He knows that Jesus conquered the powers of death and destruction. So all he can do, all he has left is to shake us with fear and discouragement. Nehemiah also encounters another ruse, a false prophet trying to lure him into the temple. And it's not quite clear um, how this trap or this sabotage was going to play out. But Nehemiah has, again, spiritual discernment that just because this man is within Jerusalem's walls doesn't mean that he's a true prophet, a trustworthy prophet. And in, instead, he finds out the guy was actually hired by the enemies. So even, chapter 6, verse 15, even with all of this interference, the wall was finished. It was accomplished in 52 days. And when our enemies heard the work was complete and the surrounding nations saw our wall, their confidence crumbled. Only one possible conclusion could be drawn. It was not just our efforts that had done this thing. It was the Lord God working alongside us. Church, I wonder what we could build in 52 days from now. What could we look back on? What could we dream up thinking it's impossible for us to do that? It's impossible to double our numbers. It's impossible to reach the new residents who are moving into our neighborhood. It's impossible to connect with secular, atheist, agnostic people in this city that offers so many other solutions to their problems and their quest for identity and purpose. It's impossible to get families who are juggling children in elementary school and high school to commit to serve in church. It's impossible to get university students who have a full course load to serve on the weekends. It's impossible to get seniors who are shut in to connect and identify their calling, but it is not impossible with God. Where are we going to be in 52 days from now? We have a ministry fair that we are planning for on September 23rd, and a team of us are praying that we would see total member involvement, that everyone would say, yes, I can greet once a month. Yes, I can help with kids once a month. I could do the check-in or I could tell a story or I could operate the slide system or I could help weed the gardens or I could check in on a senior or I could visit an, a young mom who's struggling with postpartum or I could host some students who are away from family. There are unlimited possibilities of how each and every one of us can build something amazing something life-changing for people who need to know the life-transforming love of Jesus. There are unlimited opportunities and capacity if we would partner with God and be able to look back and say, wow, 52 days from now, look at what we built. Look at the community of faith here that is committed to inviting, involving, and including each other to build up the kingdom of God 
and to be known not for what we're uh, against. You'll notice that Nehemiah never sends the people out to take on the threats. You know, their offense was what they were known for, what they were building, what they stood for, and who they served and the kind of God that they had. They were ready to defend against attacks, but their focus was on what are we building here together? So I'm asking you, what are we going to build 52 days from now? What are we going to look back and say, this blew our minds. We, we did something unimaginable and it had to have been the power and the partnership of God in achieving lost, broken lives, restored, renewed, reconnected through Jesus. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, when we're facing the impossible, when we're facing perceived threats, when we're facing the lure of temptation, distraction, forgive us if we haven't made a prayer our first response. We're doing it now. We're humbling our hearts. We repent of our split vision. And Lord, give us focus. Give us conviction. Give us a spirit that is hungry to build something bigger than ourselves, something beyond our imagination. Lord, this city of 700,000 people, and we are maybe 200 gathered today, and we think, what can we do? We're like the disciples with loaves and fishes going, how do we feed all these people? But Lord, we trust that you will bless our efforts, that you will bless our work, and you will empower us to build something incredible in your name for your glory. Do a good work within us, we pray in your holy and mighty name. Amen. Thank you for listening to OAC Vancouver's podcast. Learn more at oacvancouver.ca. If you're in Vancouver, join us for worship Saturdays at 11 a.m. at 5350 Bailey Street. If you enjoyed today's episode, please rate, review, and subscribe. God bless you and have a wonderful day.